Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Good evening. You are listening to Radio Islam, and I'm your host, Tariq El Amin. For those of you who are new to Radio Islam, we welcome you. We're a live call in talk show broadcasting from Chicago on WCEV 1450 AM. And you can hear our live stream at www.wcev1450.com. Or listen to us on the TuneIn app. Just pump, just type in WCV. Uh, if you haven't already done so, folks, keep up with us on social media by following and liking us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. If you have a comment or question you'd like to pose throughout the course of tonight's show, we would love to hear from you. Give us a call at 312 750 1178. That's 312-750-1178. Radio Islam, welcome, Radio Islam family, welcome to another edition of Radio Islam. And we've got a, uh, we've got a great program for you tonight. Um, we're going to start off our program uh, reflecting on uh, the United States foreign policy, specifically with, within the uh, South Asia uh, South Asian region. And to do that, we're going to be talking with an expert uh, in this field that's going to allow us to uh, take a, an in-depth look um, at that foreign policy uh, and, to, and to just get a better understanding um, because sometimes we get kind of bogged down with just the things that we see in the national and the, the local news, and we hear about some of these things that are going on, uh, but we really don't know how to process them. So uh, I'm going to start by saying that uh, recently Washington confirmed uh, suspending $255 million of military aid to Pakistan. Uh, the U.S. Press Secretary Sand Sarah Sanders said that the actions being taken against Islamabad are a follow-up to Donald Trump's South Asia policy announced last year. So, I mean, that sounds pretty, um, uh, pretty general, but it doesn't really say too much of anything. So we're going to be talking with um, Junaid Ahmed. Uh, he is a director of the Center for Middle, Middle Eastern Politics and is also an assistant professor at the University of Lahore in Pakistan. And he's also, um, he's also with the uh, International Movement for a Just World. And um, I believe we have him on the line now. Junaid? Yes, hello. Assalamu alaikum. Well, alaikum Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and help us to process some of these things that we've seen in the news uh, to give us some, some context <laughs> <Yeah>. on them. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that, that in addition to the, uh, to the military aid that was cut um, last week, uh, I believe, uh, mm -hmm. there is uh, the discussion that um, there's kind of this pitting uh, one against the other that's going on uh, with the development of, of India and how it has taken on mu much more uh, significance uh, and importance in the United States executing its foreign policy aims uh, in that South Asian region. That's right. Yeah. So that's right. Yeah. Uh, what, what can you tell us? How has that come about and uh, what are the mm -hmm. things that we should be paying attention to? Right. Well, you know, this is uh, it's always uh, fun speaking about this topic because in some ways it's so messy, complicated, and bizarre, mm -hmm. uh, this uh, relationship that's unfolded between the United States and Pakistan 
uh, historically speaking, but especially after uh, uh, September 11th and the U.S. war in Afghanistan. And uh, now uh, your listeners should remember the longest U.S. Uh, war in, in U.S. history mm-hmm. uh, that's been running now for 16 years plus. So, uh, and Pakistan has been central to that, even though every year we get uh, multiple announcements. Of course, this uh, tweet at the new year, you know, I I should say that Pakistanis responded to it uh, in a very strange way. One, of course, uh, profound anger at the hostility embedded in the tweet by Trump, but also a heightened sense of self-importance that, you know, Pakistan was the first thing that Trump uh, thought about <laughs> as the new year came, you know. So, but it, it uh, epitomized the kind of strange relationship uh, that on the one hand, it has always been called uh, since the war in Afghanistan as a major non-NATO ally in the war on terror. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there's always the looming threat that overnight it can be demoted and converted to a state sponsor of terrorism right (laughs) so it's this contradictory approach uh to pakistan since then and it and what it demonstrates at the heart of it is that essentially pakistan was was forced from the beginning to be a part of this war on terrorism uh in the specific form that it took which was a very heavy-handed militaristic approach and so one of the pitfalls of the entire scenario and one of uh, the consequences is that not only was the war being waged in Afghanistan, but essentially it was expanded into Pakistan. And that, was very, that has been uh, very dangerous and that has been incredibly consequential in terms of the human toll that it's taken, you know, in terms of, you know, Pakistan has lost about 70,000 lives. Uh, during these 16 years uh, because of uh, the increased uh, amount of terrorism within it, uh, drone attacks, um, all sorts of human, I mean, in terms of just the the social toll, uh, uh, human displacement of millions of people. So it's taken a real toll on Pakistan, and I think that often we, we forget about that. And the second thing that you were talking about, that it's very, very important that while, uh, you know, we, we love to pontificate to Pakistan, you know, it's not doing enough. It's, and now, of course, this very provocative and blatant accusation that it's engaged in lies and deceit, as, uh, as President Trump says. You know, on the other hand, Pakistan's arch nemesis, India, as you just mentioned, mm-hmm. is being showered by largesse by Washington over the, I mean, not just the past, 16 years, but even before that, but especially escalated during this time, you know, in terms of mutual deals, allowing uh, India to develop its nuclear enrichment and energy uh, and and allocate some of that for nuclear weapons, sharing of intelligence, of bases, and what's been a principal concern to Pakistan is basically giving the, the Indians a free hand in Afghanistan to dominate that country uh, politically and economically. 
So, you know, you're talking about a country, you know, Pakistan, which is already on the eastern front with India, the border, you know, border with India and in Kashmir Mm -hmm. is already feels threatened, bullied. Now you're allowing India and Afghanistan to dominate as well. So you you're pretty much going to expect Pakistan to behave the way that it does in terms of making sure that, well, you know, even if it does have links to or doesn't take any hostile action against some of these groups, it's probably a, a very geostrategic reason why it's not doing so. Hmm. Uh, is, is one of those, well, I don't want to say reason, but uh, are one of the uh, factors that are, that are involved is the, mm-hmm. uh, the border that is often referenced, uh, referred to as, uh, I, I think porous is one of the words that I've heard. Um, That's right. In, 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 in describing uh, the border. Um, is that something that is taken into consideration, or do you think that that's, uh, that's talked about enough, or how, mm-hmm. how, how do we see that? Uh, no, I don't think it's uh, emphasized enough, and I'm really glad you highlighted that, because uh, that precisely presents uh, one of the, the, the main difficulties in, uh, in trying to you know, go after groups, which are, you know, oftentimes we, we don't even know who... Uh, you know, the U.S. government is speaking about, or for that matter, even the Pakistani government is unclear about. But the, the problem is that uh, it's not really a problem for the people. They have, of course, uh, the problem began for them is when an artificial boundary was drawn by the British in the late 19th century called the Duran Line, which, listeners should know, separated probably the largest uh, tribe or nation of people in the world that don't have a state today. And that people is known as the Pashtuns, mm. uh, the, the Patans, but the Pashtun people. You know, we're talking about a people of 50 to 60 million people, um, you know, about one-third of which are on the Afghanistan side and two-thirds of on the Pakistan side. So that was an artificial border created, and that, that, that can't, that's not a real border. It's even after... Uh, the border was created even after Pakistan's independence and the creation of Afghanistan as well. It's still been, as you correctly point out, a very porous border. And Pashtuns have gone back and forth, and it, it's been irrelevant to them. And so now, and you can't, you can't put like a barbed wire or a fence. You know, these people who say that have no idea of the terrain mm-hmm. of this region. So you can't really do that uh, in, in these areas. Right. And so and the other thing that's important to point out is that we often uh, hear that, you know, this is uh, the the same kind of uh, fanatical, religious, ideological force known as the Taliban that was there before in the 1990s. This is also very misleading. Mm -hmm. What is called the Taliban today is very, very different. It's basically an umbrella group for what we can call the ethnic Pashtun resistance in Afghanistan. And for the listeners, it's important to remember that the Pashtun population is 60% of the country of Afghanistan, yet are totally marginalized and sidelined from uh, any national uh, government in in Kabul. Therefore, they're going to have their grievances. And beyond them, and and it's important to know, it's not just exclusive, the resistance that emerged to the foreign occupation. It's not just exclusive to the ethnic Pashtuns, because people are you know, tired and fed up of an arrogant, incompetent, corrupt uh, regime in Kabul and its uh, and, and the foreign occupation that engages in, you know, all types of 
uh, heavy-handed tactics, uh, airstrikes, drone attacks, special operations forces. Uh, so all, all these things are taking place. And so what, what, what is done from here, uh, from the United States, from Kabul, from New Delhi, it's a very convenient uh, strategy they have. Any difficulties and problems they have, the scapegoat is Pakistan. You just blame it on Pakistan, right? Mm. Now, uh, when you mentioned um, Kabul and you mentioned the, the lack of, of, of real effective leadership, uh, governmental mm-hmm. leadership, um, what this, the, the, the questions that come to my mind are, uh, in these areas, uh, they're looking for stability, uh, and quite right. often it's so that there can be uh, a, an effective foreign investment um, uh, that can come in. Um, looking at it, and I hope that may, makes sense. Um, That's right. Looking, looking at this, does Pakistan see itself um, being kind of put put in the back seat now because it has it has developed more ties uh, with with China's economically um, to to the uh, I guess to the chagrin of the United States. Uh, are, are right. these things that are starting to come out where Pakistan is uh, is not looking to necessarily to be the proxy of the United States, military proxy of the United States in that uh, um, in Afghanistan? Right. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm glad you raised the the issue of China because. Uh, this is the the other part of the story, which is critical to understanding what's going on. Mm-hmm. I think that there is no new resurgent threat of of terror, of any uh, threat to the West that's come from Afghanistan or Pakistan, and so there there's no new compulsion for you know whether it's this tweet this new policy towards uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan announced by Trump actually back in August of 2017 this tweet kind of is just uh um moving forward with the the, the promises that he made then which was basically that they was going to punish Pakistan if it didn't uh, cooperate more fully but i think this is this is the the new uh, important aspect of this entire scenario. That is the, the growing influence of China in the region mm-hmm. and specifically its relationship with Pakistan, because what that has done, not that it had to unfold this way, but it's because of the behavior uh, of the U.S. in so openly favoring India, uh, downgrading its relationship with Pakistan. It was entirely predictable. Mm-hmm. That in very old, stable relationship, it's not anything new. It's an old relationship that Pakistan has had with China, that it would only strengthen those ties in a situation where it felt that not only was it going to suffer economically, but it really genuinely felt there were security uh, threats, perhaps even in the form of military action against it, uh, that were meant to destabilize Pakistan, mm-hmm. potentially break it apart. All of, and, 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 and they were not saying this uh, or they were not thinking this without any merit. They have been, uh, over the past 16 years, plans coming out uh, from Washington think tanks, particularly you know, neocon ones, that have essentially spoken about these types of plans. So, you know, I mean, it's another matter to say, okay, whether any you know, government is going to actually follow through with them. But 
they were well aware, you know, the Pakistani establishment, that this is coming from Washington. They already know that India is hostile to it. They know that the government in Afghanistan is hostile to it. So it was entirely predictable and perhaps natural and logical that it would strengthen its relationship with what it calls its all-weather friend, uh, China. Um, And so they, uh, you know, in terms of not only geostrategically are cooperating, but the major Chinese investment known as CPEC, Chinese-Pakistan Economic Corridor, Mm-hmm. Uh, that's going to go from China all the way to the Arabian seaport in Pakistan uh, of Gwadar. That is absolutely essential for China. Right. So it's a very mutually dependent relationship. It's not just like a one-way street. Uh, China would need that port. It's very important for listeners to know in, in, in a situation where things escalate between the U.S. and China and they try to, you know, a blockade, uh, choke points in the South China Sea, the Indian Ocean. That's where the major trade activity takes place, what China is dependent on. If that happens, then China would have uh, access to this port of Gwadar, which at that point would be the lifeline of Chinese economic activity. So we are talking about a very changed situation there. And yes, you're absolutely right. I think that Pakistan at this point feels confident that even if all U.S. aid ended tomorrow, right? Right now we have the suspension of military aid, security aid. Mm -hmm. But if all U.S. aid right now, China also needs Pakistan as much as Pakistan needs China. So their relationship, you know, uh, as I say that if you think about it, Pakistan is probably China's most powerful, uh, closest ally in the world. Uh, The Pakistani military is, of course, no joke. You know, it's particularly in the the Muslim-majority world, it's along with Turkey, uh, the most formidable, powerful military. So we are talking about a very changed geopolitical situation there. uh, I mean, certainly globally as well, but definitely in the region, Mm -hmm. uh, where I think that one of the interests of the United States in just maintaining a presence where otherwise one would be very, uh, you know, bewildered. You know, why would we insist on staying in a country where there's been, you know, miserable, failed occupation for 16 years. Right. And I think the reason for that is not necessarily Afghanistan per se, but it's, it's because of the region itself. You know, neighboring to Afghanistan, you have Iran, then you have Russia, a resurgent Russia, then China, Pakistan. So it's also to keep a check on developments taking place. Uh, and this, uh, I was talking earlier about CPEC. Now, CPEC is one component uh, you may know of the Ch- Chinese larger project known as the Belt Road Initiative, mm-hmm. larger Eurasian integration of Central Asia, all the way to Europe, Africa, throughout the Middle East. So these are huge plans, and kind of the U.S. is being left behind from all of it. Yes, I'm, and I'm looking at, um, and I believe uh, this is regarding the 2015 uh, Pakistan and China agreement, uh, the $46 billion uh, project, um, uh, and some of this is supposed to be developed by the end of this year, uh, if what I've uh, read is correct. That's right. Um, so, and I'm, and I'm really looking at, and I guess what we should all be paying attention to, uh, those of us who are not, who are not experts, but, but we, we see these uh, stories in the, in the news, that there is a changing, uh, there's a changing landscape. Um, uh, that seems to be taking place 
uh, right in front of us. And I mentioned India as well because uh, India, uh, from what I understand, they have the fastest growing economy uh, in the world um, right now. And, That's right. And as, as these alliances shift and change, um, are you concerned that the United States' uh, continued involvement with or deepening ties with with India that it will it will also relate in uh, it will also result in further uh, military uh, military mm-hmm. aid and military uh, spending. Yeah, th- this is you know the unfortunate part of this, this situation. I, again, you know these things were were not uh, and are not inevitable. Mm-hmm. So these are obviously policy choices for alliances and the nature of those alliances between uh, states. So it's very, very unfortunate the way uh, India, you know, that the developing world, the third world looked at as kind of a leader uh, in in the non-aligned movement and standing up for third world independence and so on, has so firmly anchored itself to uh, what, you know, began under well, at least was announced publicly under the Obama administration, known as the Pivot to Asia policy, which, you know, if you read between the lines, wasn't just about kind of, okay, let's have cooperation and and pay more attention to Asia. It was, uh, or East Asia particularly, it was basically, let's figure out how to contain, isolate, encircle China. I mean, that's essentially what it was about, which was correctly seen as... uh, a growing competitor, rival uh, nation. And so one of the components of that has been, you know, in addition to old allies in the Indo-Pacific region like Australia and Japan, the U.S. understood that India would also be central to this strategy. Huge country, huge military, uh, huge economy, uh, very much increasingly connected with the, with the American economy. So somewhat like Israel... Uh, India would also be recruited, uh, in, at least in, 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 in Asia, uh, to uh, help it contain China. And it's basically jumped on board because India has had its own issues with China as well. But certainly uh, over the past uh, you know, two decades, now it's only heightened those tensions uh, with China because China knows fully well you know, what, what, the, what the Indians are doing and how the U.S. Uh, is being supplied Indian airspace, Indian bases. Indian intelligence about about the Chinese. So, you know, these are these are decisions which are very unfortunate because one could have imagined and can imagine alternative possibilities where, you know, the regional countries cooperate, right, in terms of trying to figure out, uh, you know, greater integration amongst themselves, what the Chinese are trying to do with all of the countries of the region, mind you. The only exception is, is India because it is so uh, interlocked with the American project right now to basically contain China. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, and yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. This, is, this can potentially be a very dangerous situation. So while you have all of these countries, we have to remember, who are nuclear armed, go right. through the list, right? You know, Pakistan, India, neighboring countries, and China, another nuclear power, Russia, you have the Korean crisis, you know. So you have them all nuclear armed. But it's important for listeners to remember things really get, you know, people in the region really get, uh, you know, get on the edge 
when the United States starts to issue these types of statements because of its behavior uh, and its regional reordering that it engages in, that kind of uh, you know messes with the balance of power in the region that then puts people over the edge in terms of you know what's going to happen next. Hmm. Okay, uh, Janae, do you have? Is there a summation or anything? Like I said, uh, the Radio Slime listeners may or may not be, you know, really acutely aware of what's going on. Could you give us uh, kind of a, a one-minute um, sure. kind of summation? Yeah, because we're going to have to um, uh, go to break and, uh, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I think that the most important part of uh, this story is, uh, is actually to contextualize it uh, as part of a broader picture of what's going on in the world. And I think that that is what should be welcome. Mm -hmm. uh, that is a growing multipolar world, that we are moving beyond uh, the scenario. Uh, I mean, whether it was after the Cold War, even during the Cold War, where we had basically one superpower, one unipolar hegemonic power, that is the United States, Mm -hmm. uh, that was calling the shots everywhere, that was able to dominate so easily and dictate to others what to do, uh, and, you know, whether it's, you know, and, and in that light, Pakistan, along with another interesting, you know, Muslim-majority country, Turkey, mm -hmm. you know, these countries are very interesting to follow developments uh, in, in them because throughout the Cold War, you know, Turkey, of course, being a NATO member, they essentially followed, you know, what... what what the United States sold them to. We don't see that anymore. So forget about the big countries, China and, uh, and Russia, which are no longer taking, even you can call mid-level, mid-tier countries like a Pakistan, a Turkey, or an Iran. You know, they're not even following orders anymore. What this points to is a very changed international scenario in which listeners should, see, should welcome the fact that we have a growing multipolar world but also recognize that this is becoming very, very difficult for planners in Washington to come to terms with, to consider themselves just one power amongst equals. You know, even if, right. you know, they're larger and, and more powerful country, but one amongst equals, and then come to the table to try to resolve diplomatically and politically conflicts. You know, I often say, and I'll wrap up with this, that what we're seeing today in, in Pakistan and Afghanistan is almost like a Syria redux. In Syria, there was a bloody civil war. And at the end of the day, Turkey just got together with the Iranians and the Russians to try to figure out some type of post-war settlement. You know, wherever that's going, hopefully some stability and peace. And what they're afraid of in Afghanistan is something similar. The regional powers come together to, to try to put together a solution which has next to no input from, from, from the United States. So it's, right. it's trying to come to terms, which is very difficult from its growing, uh, you know, decline in, in world affairs. And that's what produces then these kind of very anxious, paranoid tweets right. <laughs> at times from the White House. Well, thank you so much, Janae, for giving us some perspective and, and uh, sharing your expertise with us. Um, hope that we can talk with you again in the near future. Um, uh, absolutely. It was my pleasure. All right. Thank you so much. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.
All right, Radio Sound family, we were speaking with Junaid Ahmed. Um, he is the uh, director of the Center for Middle Eastern Politics and assistant professor at the University of Lahore in Pakistan. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to be joined by Salahuddin Muhammad, uh, author, and we'll get into that conversation when we come back. excuses for not saving energy. I didn't plug it in. I'll turn it off later. It's not my music. It's just one phone charger. So um, we don't have those Energy Star appliances. So that old window leaks. How much energy and money could the new ones really save? Maybe it's time to stop making excuses and start doing some simple things to save the energy and resources we can. Because a little here and a little there can add up to a lot later. And you just never know what people will need in the future. My name is Sarah, and I'm going to get started today. We can all help save more energy for tomorrow. What's your excuse? For more energy-saving tips that also save money, visit loseyourexcuse.gov parents. This message is brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy, the Ad Council, and the station. Assalamu alaikum. Sound Vision is starting a new initiative to provide crisis intervention to those in need. Through the crisis text line, anyone can text 741-741 and be connected via text to a trained crisis counselor who is there to listen and show empathy. The crisis text line is open to everyone. By texting the keyword SALAM, that's S-A-L-A-M, to 741-741, users will be connected to a trained Muslim counselor whenever available. You can also volunteer to undergo training and become a counselor. For more information, visit soundvision.com. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome back to Radio Islam. I'm your host, Tariq Alameen. We are joined on the phone by Salahuddin Muhammad and we're going to speak with him he is the author <clears throat> excuse me he is the author of Imam uh, America's Imam Warthdin Muhammad's interpretation of Islam in the milieu of American society uh, Salahuddin Muhammad he's earned a master's degree in Islamic studies and Christian Muslim relations from Hartford Seminary in Hartford Connecticut and um, Salah, uh, Salahuddin, he introduces Imam Warthi Muhammad's comprehensive understanding and application of Islam in the context of the American society. Uh, he also shows how Imam Warthi Muhammad's perspective of Islam promotes inclusiveness for Muslims living in America. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you uh, talking with us, the, the Radio Islam family. Yes. So let me just jump right in and ask, okay. what was your motivation for writing this book? Well, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, alhamdulillah, rabbil alameen, wa salatu wa salam ala rasuluhu. So the uh, motivation um, behind uh, writing this book is twofold. Mm -hmm. uh, the first reason was, um, if the listeners don't know, or if you don't know, um, this book was first my thesis mm -hmm. so um you know when you have a thesis you also have to um, defend it 
So when I um, defended my thesis, um, I got real good feedback from it. So um, I decided, since I got this good feedback, that I should share it with the public. So I decided to turn it into the book. Um, so that was the first reason. Um, the second reason uh, was because I am a student of Imam Wafi Muhammad, and he he said that he wanted us to give him a good um, future. He wants to give him a good future. So what that meant for me was to uh, codify his work, mm-hmm. uh, put it in a form where I can present it to the public. Um, so those are the two main reasons why I decided to um, write this book. Well, yes. well, thank you so much. And as a uh, as a fellow student uh, <laughs> of of, of, Imam, of Imam Muhammad, um, I'd like yes. to ask you what is what are your thoughts on the the present level of scholarship uh, around him? Okay, there's there's some uh, noise in the background. I don't know. It's 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 some music. And I couldn't hear the um, question. Okay. Now I was saying, okay, um, what what are your thoughts on the present level of scholarship uh, around Imam uh, Wathadine Muhammad? Well, I think it's um, I'm growing. I think you're seeing a lot of his uh, students or those or those who have a strong affinity with him. Uh, um, they're beginning. Um, to go back to school and and get their master's degrees, go to seminary school and get their master's degrees, go and get their PhDs. Um, so I think the level of uh, scholarship is really growing. Uh, one of the um, persons that I would zoom in right now mm-hmm. as a prime example is um, um, Intasar Rob. Yes. Um, if you know about her, she's she's a she's a major um, Muslim woman scholar. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's she's like top notch. So I would say that it is growing. Um, more people are more interested in getting uh, uh, PhDs and and also a master's degree. Yeah. Right. And and what do you think about the uh, the level of scholarship in terms of uh, of, of research, uh, because your book, and first, before I even go any further, I'm going to tell the Radio Islam family, uh, you can get the book, you can log on to uh, americasimam.com, mm-hmm. uh, americasimam.com, and you can actually, uh, you can see a little bit more about uh, our brother Salahuddin, but you can also get the book there. Um, but well, my, my question is in regard to how other religious scholars or sociologists, uh, anthropologists, how they are looking at the uh, the body of knowledge, uh, the body of work left by Imam Muhammad. How do you feel? What what is your what is your assessment of the the level of engagement right now? Well, I think um, more people are paying attention to it. Um, I think that when you look at the Muslim landscape. Now, you can see that a lot of people have paid attention uh, uh, after 9-11. So you can see more people that are engaging his language, his methodology of how to apply Islam in this country. Um, but it, 
is not as um, broad as it should be. As it should be, but you do have little pockets here and there who are really um, taking heed to his methodology. Um, and and one of the biggest methodologies, or his interpretation of Islam in America, is his perception of how to deal with the other, meaning that he, prior to 9-11, he was really pushing the whole thing with interfaith dialogue. Yes. So you see now, after 9-11, you see a lot of Muslims really doing a lot of interfaith dialogue. And this is one of the methods that he did prior to 9-11. But you see, after 9-11, you see a lot of people who are implementing that interfaith dialogue. Yes. Yeah. And uh, would you speak a little bit about, uh, for those who are maybe not familiar uh, with uh, Imam Muhammad's leadership or uh, community, um, when you talk about Imam uh, Muhammad's his language and methodology, could you expound a little bit on that? Yeah. So Imam Muhammad's language and methodology was not a traditional way of doing things. Um, and that's because of the context in which he lived. So he would use the Bible, okay? He would use the Bible because he, he wasn't just talking to Muslims, he was talking to Christians, too. So he understood that he had to use what was close to them or what they had an affinity with. So he would use the Bible, but he would also use the Quran to make those connections. So that's one of his approaches. Mm-hmm. Um he would he would also um, promote inclusiveness, meaning meaning that he would he would also want to show not just what religious people have in common, but just the regular Joe or the regular citizen. So he would he would talk about human salvation, yes. human. He, he would talk about being patriotic. He would talk about getting involved into the uh, fabric of America. So he was he was more so of trying to interpret Islam in a manner that wasn't in the, a um, traditional way, because he understood that you couldn't use the interpretation from Saudi Arabia or even Pakistan to show Muslims how to live their life because it's two different places. And it's, and I always give an example. It's like trying to put a square peg into a round circle. Mm-hmm. So he so he really, a lot of his influences were found in him um, using, using the Bible and also using the Quran together. Right. Uh, what have, what has, what have been the uh, the responses that you have gotten thus far from those? Uh, I guess this is a two part question from those who are uh, within uh, the community or familiar with uh, Imam Muhammad's leadership, and those outside uh, who maybe oh. this is their first their first um, time being you know uh, introduced. Well, uh, for those who are who who are part of his association. It's more so like a um, refresher for them, mm-hmm. um, and it all. And I'm also introducing more um, insight too. But it's but it's more 
of a refresher. Um, now, for those who are not a part of his, his community, um, it's like a breath of fresh air for them. It's like hope. Uh, they see it as something that can be implemented in this country. Um, so those are the two responses I get uh, from um, both parties, from those those who associate with him and those who don't really know him that well. Right. Now, was was America's Imam was that the title that just jumped out to you, or did you have to did you have to give that some thought? Well, so when I was uh, researching the uh, topic, I, I forgot. I'm thinking that it was the uh, um, Chicago Tribune. They did a did an article on Imam Muhammad right after his passing. Yes, yes. And so they titled the article "America's Imam." Mm-hmm. So when I saw that, I said, "This is a perfect title for a book. This 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 fits him perfectly. America's Imam." So I didn't come up with it, but I found it on the um, Chicago Tribune's uh, website. Yeah. Okay. Yes, and I remember I remember uh, that edition. As a matter of fact, yeah. I might still, I may still have it um, boxed away uh, mm-hmm. somewhere. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of uh, his, Imam Muhammad's contribution towards uh, inclusivity, uh, is mm-hmm. that an inclusivity that you feel that goes um, not just to the general um, society of the United States of America, um, but also is um, an inclusivity that reaches out to the to the to the Ummah in general, uh, and I'm speaking. I'm not speaking really world worldwide, but I'm, I just want to kind of focus on uh, on the Muslim population in the U.S. Uh, is that mm-hmm. an inclusivity that encompasses uh, the, the 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 diverse representation of Muslims that we have uh, here? Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think he was he was he wasn't he wasn't a nationalist type of guy. Meaning that he wasn't just concerned about black people or African-American people. If you study him in his um, later years, he was, he was, he was, he was concerned about human beings more so than anything. And, and he, one of the things that I, one of the last things that he left us with is that he, he, he said that a human being is a true Muslim or, or a Muslim is a true human being. Right. So, so his concern began to um, broaden. He began to really deal with the human um, condition, the human condition more than anything else. So he, he, I can't, I, I don't want to say he broke away from Islam, but he, his, his idea uh, later in his life is that he was more concerned with the human, human condition and not just the Muslim condition. Yeah. Well, I think that, I don't that, know if that answer that. No, 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 no. I think that definitely yeah. that definitely sounds um, uh, that relates directly to uh, fourth uh, surah, first verse. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, reverence your guardian Lord who created you from a single soul. Mm-hmm. Um, now, do you think that? What do you think is the the hallmark of his leadership? Well, no, no. Let let, let me rephrase that. Mm-hmm. Would you would you expound a little bit on the title that he took on for himself? Because I think it's really important with regard to what you just mentioned about the idea of 
of, of serving and being concerned about the human being, uh, whoever they are, wherever they are. And the title mm-hmm. that he took on, spokesperson for human salvation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. He, I mean, he took that, I think he took that on, like, um, probably when he was at his zenith. You know what I'm saying? I, I'm not trying to measure his life, but I'm saying when he was, when he really became very, um, I would say, um, influential. When when people started seeing him on the scene, he he took on that title um, because he wasn't he was he was he was speaking at universities. He was going to the um, Vatican. He was he was dealing with Jews. He was dealing with I mean he was he was he was dealing with a broad audience. So he began to see not just Muslims taking heed to what he was saying, but he was seeing all human beings. He was, I mean, he was, he was, he had been invited to do the prayer at uh, President Clinton's, one of President Clinton's functions. Mm-hmm. So he had, he had, he had, he had, he was, he was just not a spokesman just for the Muslim community. He had began to be a spokesman for all human beings. And I think, Sometimes we do forget that um, because even at Morehouse, if you go to Morehouse University, they have a picture of Imam Muhammad. So he was he was not just a, a leader for the Muslim; mm-hmm. he was a leader for human beings. Mm, I, I didn't know that about Morehouse. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so, what do you think? Uh, and this is interesting. I had a um, I had a conversation with the with a guest uh, maybe a month ago, uh, mm-hmm. and we we got on the, the subject of Imam Muhammad. And uh-huh. one of the things that we talked about was what, what, what she saw as the, I guess, the, the, the defining characteristics of his leadership. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I'd like to hear, wh- what, what do you think, uh, what, what, what is your opinion on what is the defining characteristics of, of Imam Muhammad's leadership? Mm-hmm. What, what, what really stands out, uh, you know, what really stands out about him. Well, one of, I, I think what really stands out with him, and, and it's a lot of stuff, but, I, but if I had to really um, zoom in and, 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 and really pick out one characteristic mm-hmm. was he, he was a visionary. Mm-hmm. He, was, he was a visionary. And, and the reason why I say that is because when you study his life, when you study when he first picked up the um, flag, when he first picked up the uh, American flag, and when he did that, that was like blasphemy. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Why are you picking up the American flag in the 1970s? You know what I'm saying? And you're a Muslim too? Right. So I think he, he his, one of the things is that he was, he was a visionary. I think he was, he was short of being prophetic. Not not a prophet, but he was he was he was um, prophetic in in his vision that he understood that in order for Muslims to survive in America, we will have to embrace the good that America offers and to um, criticize the bad. Mm. And so, if, if I had to really pick out that quality that really stands out. Is that he was a trailblazer, and when you look at when you look at the Muslim community, when you look at those Muslims who are progressing, 
mm-hmm. the organization that are progressing, you can see his leadership. You can see his leadership. So I, I, I think more than anything, he was a visionary, he was a trailblazer, and he was prophetic. He wasn't a prophet, but he was um, prophetic. Yeah, the, the, that ability to see uh, reality yeah. that may not have been apparent to everybody else. Yes, um, yes. And what I find interesting in what you just said is uh, it brings me back to the conversation I was referencing and um, the the takeaway or that that was uh, expressed at that time was that his leadership had such great uh, resonance because it was not built on one individual. Uh, And it was empowering uh, so that the effects or the presence of that of that leadership, the presence, uh, uh, the the evidence of it, is not is not in the same way that we are used to seeing things. Where when mm-hmm. one one leader uh, leaves, that another one simply emerges. But in this instance, her contention was that we now have thousands. Uh, we have thousands, uh, or whatever the number. We have a, a great number of people who are empowered to pick up, kind of pick up that mantle of being advocates for humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he left, he left, he left a blueprint. That's what I think. I, I think he left a blueprint. Mm-hmm. And, and I think if we take heed to that blueprint, it is, it is very relevant to our situation, to our situation right now. I mean, if, if we would take heed to what he left, his, his, his guidance, his methodology of, of how to live in the context of America and we will be um, very successful, very successful. Let, let me ask you this. Do you, uh, just in terms of living within the context, uh, taking all the variables uh, into consideration where you are, you know, in, in time, uh, in, in space, all of these different things, do you think that is something that is not, that is not done uh, often enough? Uh, within the Muslim community at large, do you think that is a? Do you feel like that's a challenge that that that, that we have? Yeah. Yes. 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 I think that um, Muslims should interpret Islam in the time and space in which we live. That's not that's not um, discounting the Quran and the Sunnah, because as, as Muslims we know that the Quran is not affected by time and space. Mm-hmm. But our interpretation of Islam is, and I think once we can get over that mountain or that hill, mm-hmm. then I think that Muslims in America will progress. Now, I'm not saying that we get rid of um, traditional knowledge. I, I think traditional that traditional understanding should be our should be a resource mm-hmm. or, or or a reference that we use. But I'm, but we have to begin to interpret Islam in the time and space in which we live. And I think Imam Muhammad did that. Mm-hmm. Well, I definitely feel like um, this could be another uh, another conversation, a full-blown yeah. conversation. <laughs> yeah. But um, uh, would you like to tell the Radio Islam family how they can keep, keep up with you? I know we gave out the uh, the website address, but if you'd like to give that, that out again and any social media uh, you might have. Yeah, so you can you can you can go to my website at um, www.americasimam.com. Without a apostrophe s, 
It's America's with an S without apostrophe, imam.com. Mm-hmm. You can follow me on Instagram with America's email on Instagram. Um, you can go to my Facebook page. It is America, America's email on Facebook. And if you go to the Facebook page, you can, you can read some quotes from the book. And also I have some videos on there too. So, um, but if you want to purchase the book, you have to go to www.americasimam.com. Okay. Yes. All right, Brother Salahuddin, yeah. we thank you so much for coming on and, and talking to us about this uh, this uh, really uh, valuable and needed work that you've done. Um, yes, we pray for your continued success, and hopefully we'll, be get, we'll get a chance to check in with you in the near future. Yes, yes, yes. Inshallah. All right. Assalamu alaikum. All right. All right. Thank you, myself. All right, Radio Islam family, that was Salahuddin Muhammad. He is the author of America's Imam, um, a book dealing with uh, the life of the life and teachings, perspectives of Imam Muhammad. Muhammad. Um, before we close out, I want to share uh, a, a short, uh, quick announcement with you. Uh, as many of you who are in the Chicagoland area know, uh, on December 8th, our dear sister, Dr. Babadi Shakur Abdullah, she passed. Uh, she was a uh, a trailblazer, and that is not that is not hyperbolic uh, at all. There's no exaggeration. She was a, a she was a trailblazer. Uh, she had did she done a, she did a lot of work with the uh, Illinois State Legislature as well as the um, uh, the city and the, and the county. So tomorrow morning, uh, Cook County Board of Commissioners is adopting a resolution of tribute for Dr. Mabadi Shakur Abdullah to honor the life and memory of this outstanding Cook County citizen. This is going to happen tomorrow, Tuesday, January 9th, at 118 North Clark, uh, the county building at 8.30 a.m. For those who are able to come out, uh, her family encourages the community, and and any who supported her work uh, who appreciated the work that she did to come out and attend. So that's going to be tomorrow morning at um, 8.30 a.m., and that's 118 North Clark at the uh, Cook County at the County Building. Uh, we continue to pray for her and her family, uh, folks. We've had a uh, once again just a, a quick hour has gone by, so we hope you've enjoyed tonight's program. Uh, of course, we always enjoy bringing it to you. And our engineer, we want to go ahead and just give our thank yous right now. We want to thank our engineer Ramon over at uh, WCV. Thank you very much, sir. Our engineer in studio, the impressive one, Ibrahim Baig. I am your host and producer, Tariq el Our executive producer is Abdulmalik Mujahid. The views expressed by host and or guests are theirs and not to be taken as representative of Sound Vision, Inc. And with that being said, tomorrow, tomorrow, well, tomorrow's tomorrow. So, inshallah, with God's permission, we'll make it to tomorrow. Uh, but we look forward to talking to you guys tomorrow night, Radio Islam family. So I'm going to leave you now as I greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.